0: I've been working with a family out of South Dakota where the the kid had had a, an incident involving drugs and he's he's walked away from this single day with multiple felonies. And now he's so far underwater that uh, he's he does not Feel the ability to get out of the problems he's created for himself, and so he just went into a place of like it doesn't matter. And then, of course, when you're in that place of it doesn't matter, uh, these problems are going to get exacerbated. Bringing this up because the laws in South Dakota around the substance that he was caught with have suddenly changed on this last election, and we're seeing places in uh, uh, we're, we're we're seeing places in. Uh, uh, Oregon has suddenly decriminalized. And so it's really a question on what's going to happen in the corrections industry, uh, whether they're state or private, what's going to happen as these laws change. So my guest today is David Doughty. David is the mental health director for the state department of corrections in the state of Michigan. And I want to give a big thank you to the state of Michigan for allowing him on the show and being able to share with us, uh, what he's focusing on in the department of corrections, what he's overseeing and how Things might be starting to change. And I think a lot of us are hoping that things actually are. So, welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. I'm your host, Aaron Huey. This is a C4 WCSAD event of Beyond Risk and Back, uh, sponsored by our gold sponsors today. I'll give them a shout out later, but my guest, David Doughty uh, from the Michigan Department of Corrections. I'm really excited about this conversation. Uh, parents, families stay tuned david thank you for being on the show
1: great to be here thank you so much
0: let's jump right into it how did you end up in the prison system on the other side of it (laughs) you're on the other side of the wall but you're still in it how did you go from wherever you were to to what you do now
1: inside and outside it is kind of a funny story and i'll try to keep it short but i have been with the department of corrections since 2002 and so, you know, this is my 18th year of doing this. And I like to say that I was dragged kicking and screaming the whole way. <laughs> I had applied for a job, you know, it was just, it can be difficult as a therapist in the community to make much of a living and was looking for something with a better pay and I applied and I get this call out of the blue, Department of Corrections, no, I don't wanna work for the Department of Corrections, uh, but had an interesting offer and was assured that treatment is in fact happening in the prisons. And so went to look into that and started as a psychologist in one of our small communities here that has a couple of prisons, and uh, just kind of worked my way up through the system. And uh, here I am, 18 years later, I've been doing this job as the mental health director for six years, and I didn't want this job at first. And are you kidding me? (laughs) The, The bureaucracy of state government at that level and Do I really want to do this? But it's given me some amazing opportunities to be involved and to make some changes, not just within the department, but statewide and collaborating with other departments. It's been very cool to see some things happen.
0: From your inside track, how is the state of Michigan doing? I, I, in, in compared to other states, are there really progressive states out there that people, like for example, in the adolescent treatment field, we do look to California to say, what are you guys doing out there? Maybe we should try it. Are you guys out front? You catching up? Where, where are you guys with stuff?
1: I've been really impressed my entire career with the department to see how we are functioning and how we engage with prisoners that are in our, our prisons and how we think about what we can do for them. Now, when I first started with the department, I was told, you know, we put people in prison as their punishment. This is our mission. We mm-hmm. lock them up, keep the public safe, and then they may or may not get out according to their sentence. But we have really transitioned to a rehabilitation model that is much more, Progressive and helping people get back on their feet when they get out, you know Most people that get put in prison do return to their communities. I'd say upwards yeah. of
0: 90% Would do you think that it's it, is the industry changing because of politics or because of people and I want to separate those two because I'm not Sometimes I look at politics. I'm like those aren't people. Those are politicians. They're a different breed They got a different alphabet. Is this is this industry changing because of politics or people?
1: That's a great question. And I will say I, I have had opportunities to look at legislation as it happens and you see yeah. some legislators that really want to make some good things happen. It's a, sometimes a mix up of big business interests and political interests and public interests, but we really try to engage people that want to help make changes. And sometimes they think that the Department of Corrections is this horrible place where we just lock people in dungeons and it's helpful to really educate folks about what we do. I mean, I oversee the single largest provider of mental health treatment services in the state. And that's probably true for most of my colleagues in other states Wow! because we're locking up people with mental illnesses at very large rates. Fortunately, it's coming down, but it's a big problem.
0: Now, you you brought that up as we were off the air at the beginning where we were talking about just how many of the the men and women incarcerated are there because of mental illness. Uh, talk about that a little bit more. I want I want the, the the audience to hear what you had talked to me. How much are we talking about? Is there a percentage that you've actually got data on? or you can just looking across and looking at these actions and say people without dysfunction don't do this and we're talking about, neurological dysfunction or environmental dysfunction. And that generally represents mental health and trauma. So what are you seeing?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question that we could probably talk a long time about. And I'll try to encapsulate that, I guess. My thought, and maybe some of this is opinion, but I I generally don't think that in most cases that people are committing crimes that are specifically related to their mental illness if they have a diagnosis, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, whatever that might be. But the thing is that people can have criminal attitudes and behavior patterns that go alongside their mental illness and they may not be related. Sometimes they are, you know, sometimes you have someone that does something in a psychotic kind of uh, state where they just believed reality wasn't what it was and they, they do something. Um, But I I would say typically they're they're kind of co-occurring at the same time. But both of those issues can be treated. And what I also wanna mention is that a lot of criminal behaviors are because of a person's traumatic history. They get caught and stuck in a cycle of violence that was the only thing that they ever were exposed to or that something that they got locked into because of what repeatedly happened to them. And there are just, enormous rates that they've uh, of um, traumatic histories that they found in people when they look at mental health diversion courts, you know, 80 90% in both men and women that have experienced trauma histories. And so we really have to presume that anybody coming into our jail and prison and court systems have trauma histories that need to be addressed.
0: Is there a particular assessment or test that you're using in Michigan? Uh, Like, do you do do ACE, Adverse Childhood Experiences, to actually say, well, this is how we know it's 80 to 90, or do you guys have your own assessment?
1: So I I know that from a study that was done through uh, SAMHSA, and that's kind of a national thing that was done across several states and their courts, and we are right now in talks about how to incorporate data that we might use from ACEs and we've got a couple of our staff trained as kind of master trainers that are going to get the ACEs uh, paradigm idea process out there for us because we know it's such a huge problem. And Michigan is actually the Department of Corrections actually has it as part of our strategic plan to become a trauma informed department. We had thought we'd get it done this year, but COVID of course happened and it's set us back a little bit, but it's a mission that we have.
0: When, when you see a correctional institution go trauma-informed, what kind of changes would you expect to, expect to notice, expect to happen?
1: Yeah, good question. I actually do a training that I got from SAMHSA about becoming trauma-informed and how it helps people make changes. Um, Got a couple of notes I'm just gonna reference here, but the idea is that you want to look at all of your practices and do we do anything that might re-traumatize people? And so you're looking at the type of questions that you ask, the type of searches that you do, and just moving this stance from why are you doing that to what happened to you? And taking that kind of approach, giving people more choices about what they want to be treated like and what they need to feel safe. And it's about the idea of facilitating a safe place where people can recover and be successful. And it's a little bit hard to talk about specifics because any organization has to talk about the specific policies and practices that they have in place in order to fix those
0: i is there a particular mental illness uh or uh you know again whether it's environmental or uh, neurological is there a particular one that just stands out you see it you know all the time and it's like well that's that's Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. And it's just the same thing. Are, are most of the inmates BPD? Are most of the, the people in the system bipolar? Is there one that stands out for you?
1: They seem to be pretty well spread across the spectrum, similar to the community, except for yeah. the fact that we're just more intensified. You know, we have 10,000 prisoners in the state of Michigan that we're actively treating for some kind of a mental illness. So we do know those breakdowns. And I I know that about a third of them, or maybe a little bit more, even up to 40% have a serious mental illness. And so we're talking major depression, schizophrenia types, bipolar disorder. And, and so it's a lot of folks that have that. What I tend to see where I think you're going, maybe going with that question is sometimes the diagnoses are really hard to come by because there's just a lot going on with this individual. And that's when I tend to think maybe this person has PTSD or some kind of trauma reaction that's muddying the waters for us to figure out what might really be going on with this individual. And so hopefully that's a fair answer to that question. But it, it all is.
0: And, yeah. and I mean, I, I think, you know, as well as I do, it is kind of a trap question because I, I, it's the same in, Uh, You know, the institutionalized rehab uh, industry, you know, and and parents want to know families want to know is this is this are most of them this do most of them have this and the best we can come back and say, most of them are traumatized like like that's that's what we got to but trauma my God, that can lead any direction. And I, I, I'm sitting here wondering, like, like, I'm, I'm so proud of this concept. I'm so happy that this is taking place. Then the, you know, lock them up. You say, you know, why do you versus what happened to you? And I think that's such a, a huge paradigm shift, but how on earth do you facilitate an intervention and recovery when after this session where maybe this, this person has this huge breakdown and breakthrough and, and they're, they're, they're letting go and they're really communicating authentic emotion. And then they go back out into the milieu of a correctional facility. Just the energy of the facility has to be traumatizing. How do you even navigate that?
1: It really, it really can be. That's a a really powerful question, I think. And and that's a good understanding of what people face. And you know, I was, I was scared when I went into the first prison I went to. You know, I had this like tunnel vision moment where what have I just come into? There are prisoners around here. And, you know, we do create these structured places. I mean, Department of Corrections prisons are paramilitary organizations that we designed as a public to help keep us safe or to give us a sense of safety and so they're pretty well organized but they're full of people that have behaved badly and so that's a very real concept but that leads me to a point where I want to tell you this short story and it ties back into what you asked me about aces and so we've got some people trained and a couple of trainers and one of them started using the concepts that that she had gotten from her training with a few of the prisoners on her caseload and she had a guy who by any definition we'd look and say, that's just a horrible person, you know, murdered people, regularly assaulting people, whether they were officers or peers, and just living this horrible violent life. But she was working with him on the mental health caseload and began to work with him on the ACEs. And you know, there are those 12, uh, 10 or 12 questions. Ten, ten questions. And you know, so finding
0: such an amazing simple test.
1: Yeah, finding at four or more incidents per question on this guy's history. So just unbelievable amount of trauma. But as she opened that door to him to see, to say, this is what happened to you and it's got an impact. He began to start to separate his behavior from who he was and learn about where that had come from. And that some things that happened to him that put him in a cycle of violence and after a fair amount of time working on that one day he says to his therapist and this is so powerful i get goosebumps every time i repeat it maybe i'm not a monster and this man has expressed a goal to start helping other prisoners understand these concepts so that they can walk a similar path as he is and so by using these concepts and, and sharing them, helping people understand their trauma histories and what's going on with them, we've really been able to see some changes that are simply amazing. And it's really inspiring to hear that.
0: What a conversation this is. What an amazing This is why these conferences, these virtual conferences, whether, whether we got to do them on zoom or whether we get to do them in a big hotel and meet each other. And I I truly would prefer to be sitting across the table from David right now, talking to him face to face and exchanging business cards and stuff. But these are. These are so important. And for C4 to be able to make the transition from these big conferences, these face-to-face public conferences to these virtual conferences has been amazing. And C4 has done a really good job at it. Um, but they couldn't do it alone. They, it, it's taken some people, some companies, some organizations to step forward and financially uh, uh, and, and with time and with energy, sponsored. These conferences. These are our gold sponsors for the virtual 2020 West Coast Symposium on Addiction Disorders. Max Connect Marketing, Burning Tree, BRC Recovery, Incredible Marketing Marketing, Court Furniture, and the District Recovery Community. Thank you to the gold sponsors who showed up with energy, time, and money to make sure that these things, like what David is talking about in the in the in the correctional systems and this is such an important conversation to have and I feel so fortunate to be a part of the continuing conversation. So thank you to our gold sponsors, thank you to C4 events and thank you to the WCSAD speakers and all the sponsors for making sure this happens. Let's get back to this conversation. Are you um are you confident in the change that's taking place? Is this where we're going? And is everybody on board?
1: You know, I keep seeing movement forward. And I've been really happy to be part at least of what's going on in our state in Michigan. And I think that similar things are happening in other states. I do have a network of colleagues that do similar things. And so, you know, be encouraged. There are other people very engaged in trying to help People with criminal justice involvement, whether they've been arrested, jailed, or put in prison, to help them recovery, uh, recover, and get back to their communities successfully. And we have gone from when I started in the department, well over fifty thousand prisoners locked up in Michigan, to about thirty five thousand today. You know, we're getting people paroled and back to their communities. And that's not just the effort of the Department of Corrections. We work with judges, we work with agents, we work with communities to try and make that happen. And I think it's been a public movement that's helping that. We've seen that we just locked too many people up in this country.
0: Is the impetus of change going to be in the judicial industry or the psychological industry? Like, do we need to train therapists differently as they're getting their master's degrees and stuff to, to also be able to expand more easily into, uh, uh, working in corrections, or do we need the corrections people to say, you got to get out there and find therapists who, who've got, uh, the, the, the stones to get back in here and, and work with these men and women mm-hmm. who really are traumatized. So who has to, who has to break through?
1: I love that. And to the last part of that question, I think, both. And what I see happening is that the stigma of someone with criminal justice involvement needs to be addressed. We need to think differently as therapists, corrections, professionals, um, family members, and all kinds of community people so that we can look at people. I mean, someone with a mental illness who's been arrested and locked up, And who also has a substance use disorder has this triple threat of stigmatizing effects against them and we don't learn about that in school when we get our master's degrees and our doctoral degrees. I certainly didn't get a course on trauma and how to treat it when I was in school back in the 90s and When I look at the curriculums now, I think it's being mentioned, but there needs to be a lot better job. And organizations need to become trauma informed and trauma responsive so that they look for people and expect it when they're working with someone that has criminal justice involvement. And also get the training that it takes to see those know what to look for and get them to therapists that can actually do the trauma treatment that people need. but yeah it 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 needs to happen on all of those fronts
0: for i I know when when this episode plays for all of us involved in the west coast symposium uh on addiction disorders when you say trauma informed and uh, uh use those terms we all know what you're talking about but for the larger worldwide audience that beyond risk and back goes out to What do you mean by trauma-informed in dealing with the corrections industry? What does that mean?
1: So in becoming trauma-informed, you know, we need to learn to recognize trauma where it's happening and universally assume that it's true and it's happened to the individuals that we're working with and the change that needs to take place and it's it's a little bit difficult to encapsulate this. I mean, I do a four hour training on what it means to become trauma informed, specific to corrections. But bottom lines are, you know, really learning to show some respect to a person that is dealing with these issues and asking the questions instead of making the accusations that we just tend to do when we think somebody's a criminal. We wanna point the finger, we wanna punish them and think that they deserve what they're getting. And then learning to give them information and share with them. You know, when you or I are confused or in a new situation, what do we need? We need somebody to tell us what to expect and what's going on. And that's the same for anybody else with a mental illness, with criminal justice involvement or a substance use disorder. And they need someone to connect with them to make a human connection and be intentional about that And then finally, they really need some hope. And it's the same as you or I dealing with any difficult situation, but they need this more intentionally, more intensively, and just more thoughtfully done on a careful basis because we create these systems and these programs that can be pretty impersonal. And people really need to have connection and hope. I think those last two are the most important. And what I see happening that's really good is this movement of peer support and recovery coaches, people with lived experiences that can come alongside someone and say, I've been there, and you can make it. You'll be able to get through this because I did, and here's how we're going to do it.
0: So as, as we start wrapping around the end here, I guess the questions now turn to, I got, I got a few questions. This is, this is just fascinating when you're training the, the guards, when you're training uh, um, a a janitorial and maintenance staff, when you're training the, 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 the people who are working in the kitchen uh, and administrative staff, when we do trauma informed training, everybody has to change the energetics, the psychics of the program where everybody stops saying these are criminals and I'm working in a prison, but rather we're saying this is a place filled with people who are struggling with trauma and there's, does it soften the room (laughs) or are we still looking at inherently violent and, and people sneaking things around? Like it's really hard to break free from the image of prisons. And is that how you do it? You, you educate everybody and it softens it or is it more than that?
1: Wow. Yeah. And, and that's the task that we've got before us and, and why we have to have a strategic plan and a group of people that are going to start to figure out the tasks before us that have to take place to get everybody on board. And, you know, you do the best that you can and you teach and you train, you continue to give information and, one thing that we found is that you start with a group of champions you know find the people that are going to engage and be the people that will be most interested and do the best at this and then it can start to spread through the institution as you do more training and as you have successes and we've successfully and you're,
0: you're also talking about people who've served their time and are back out in the community making a difference
1: yeah yeah and that's that's who i really like to to focus on i mean one of, one of the first prisoners that I was working with back when I was uh, a psychologist doing direct care in the prison, I had a guy going out on parole and I called up his local community mental health organization and thought I could get an appointment for the guy. He had a psychotic disorder and they just said, yeah, tell him, you know, to come in once he gets out and we'll see if he qualifies for services or not. And I'm. I'm going, you have to be kidding me. This is a prisoner coming out. He was stalking his wife. You wanna see him immediately, right? To make sure that this warm handoff happens. And that's the engagement that I wanna see is not just that we're interested in corrections, but the community sees this as our problem, our issue, because we're all better off when we connect and work together to help people rehabilitate and recover. And we're all way worse off when we ignore the trauma and just lock people up and say they deserve whatever punishment they've got coming. And that's what I am hoping I'll be able to see more change happening with, as we adopt a more trauma responsive approach and awareness that these are people that can and do change when we put these practices in place.
0: Final question is, Is this about reallocation of funds to departments that you run, or is this about securing more Mm -hmm. funds either from the state or from voters?
1: I do think it's a different kind of spending. And we all know that when we do more proactive prevention, that we tend to spend less money and get better outcomes. So that's ultimately what I would like to see. But I don't think that you know a, a corrections department on its own can continue to be the treatment providers you know we've we've got to have partnerships where we're all looking at this issue and and when people get out on parole they're a member of the community just like anybody else and should have access to care just like anybody else with the awareness that they're at a higher risk than a lot of other people that don't have those criminal justice involvement issues and one thing I want to say that's just a a fact New York did a study a few years ago and found that within the first two weeks after release from prison or jail people had a 12 times more likelihood of dying of any cause than general population and so we really can be effective and you know, when, when you've got people with health problems, they're dying, family members are grieving, then it just compounds this problem that we've got more trauma, more grief, more violence. And so I think we can make a big impact there by targeting this population with some effective interventions that, again, involve being aware of the trauma that they've experienced and knowing what to do about it.
0: You and I talked at the beginning <clears throat> that there was, you know, didn't quite know how to tell people how to resource, you know, families who are listening, parents who are listening, clinicians who are listening. So what what strikes me yeah. is if someone is listening to you and goes, man, I, we really want to change this. We want to do what Michigan's doing. Who should they first contact? Someone in state legislator? Do they need to co- contact the Department of Corrections? How do you even start this conversation at a a state level, a, a community level?
1: It's probably a little bit different depending on who you are, but I think about treatment providers. And I can tell you that parole agents that have parolees on their caseloads are hungry for help and to know where to refer their supervisees to get the assistance that they need. So if you're a provider and you know you can do some good work with this population, I encourage you to reach out to the parole agents in your county. Um, for parents and families, there's there really is a lot of information online and there are good organizations doing things that help people get their feet on the ground with jobs, vocational training, housing, and those kind of things, like prison fellowship, or uh, there's, I saw helpforfelons.org that's helping people connect. and. Uh, I even saw Esme put up a list of what to expect when your loved one returns from jail or prison and what to do. And we can't escape the fact that these are some of the most difficult people that we have to work with in any of our organizations. But those most difficult people are also the ones where the biggest impact can be made. And I really want to get the message out that there is hope there. And there certainly are changes that can be made at the legislative level, if you have contacts there. And the, one of the things I really want to emphasize is getting state departments to work together. And as much as that can be encouraged, you know, we get in these silos and, you know, we used to have parolees getting one kind of treatment and everybody else in the community getting another kind of treatment because right. the funding streams were different, which it, it should be the same. These are all citizens of our states and communities.
0: David, incredible conversation. Thank you so much for for taking a bit of time with us and and educating the clinicians, the parents, the teachers, the, the families about what is going on and where we can make some changes. This is incredible.
1: I'd love to get this message out and I hope to be able to do more. Really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Stay on the line for a second. I'm going to take us out and then we'll come back and touch base. I'm just blown away by the conversation primarily because we use the term, I've used the term a lot, and I teach the term to parents a lot, connection before correction. And we're literally talking about an institution of correction that the old paradigm has just been lock them up, get them out, get them out of the streets and put them in a box so that we, everybody else can feel safe. And people like David are out there making the connection so that when these people are released, they know what it's like to live in a community that needs to feel safe. We cannot just sacrifice our safety for anyone. No one is greater than the many. And so it's understandable that out of fear and not understanding what's actually going on in the human brain, that people would get locked up and put away. But that's no longer true. The research, what we understand about trauma, about adverse childhood experiences, about mental illness is growing at such a rapid rate. We can't just continue to keep them in an isolated box and not apply the rules of science to what they're doing and what's what's going on for them. So, what an incredible conversation about connection and hope. So, huge thanks to David from the, from the, uh, uh, the the Department of Corrections in, in Michigan. Thank you for, for saying yes to David coming on the show. It's been amazing. I also want to thank C4 events and our gold sponsors for making sure the is happening. Thank you to Deepin Productions, who produces the podcast, Your Cause Consulting, who makes sure this podcast gets in front of the people who need to hear it and need to see it. Parents, take care of yourselves first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because that's how we're going to do our best work with our children. I'm going to see you again next week for another incredible conversation. Please, when you got a second, listen, like subscribe and share to be on risk and back. And please leave a review on iTunes because that helps me get the message in front of parents who need the message of hope. I'll talk to you next week.